what would you think of a doctor who, after seeing your severely broken leg, right, you got the bone sticking out, blood's coming down, and he looks at you and he says, oh, take a Tylenol, you'll be fine, walk it off, right? Or a paramedic who hears a 911 call and says, oh, it's fine, they'll, things will, they'll figure it out. Or a detective, right, crime scene investigator. He gets to the scene of the crime. It's a murder scene. There's a victim on the floor, and he simply shrugs his shoulders, and he says, well, it happens. Well, these are all incredibly inappropriate responses to the situation, right? These are wrong responses to the situation. Now, think about it. Is your response to sin also inappropriate? What do you do when you sin? How do you respond to sin, right? When we sin, we need to come to God with the right intentions, the right perspective, and the right heart. We're going to look at Psalm 51 tonight. So if you could open your Bibles, I want you guys to look at this text with me. Open your Bibles to Psalm 51. We're going to be, we're going to read all of the verses here, but while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background of why David wrote this Psalm. David wrote this psalm, and it's reflecting back on 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. David wrote this psalm as a response to his sin with Bathsheba. Now, he desired Bathsheba, and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He, created, he uh, committed a, a, an egregious sin. And what he tried to do is he tried to cover up his sin. Instead of confessing his sin, he tried to cover it up. What he did was he... Well, because she got pregnant, he called his, uh, her husband, Uriah, from the war to come home and essentially cover up the sin by sending him, sending him to the house to, you know, do married people things, right? They, he wanted uh, Uriah to, to seem like, okay, this is my son. This is my child. Well, Uriah, it, it didn't work out the way that David hoped. Uriah was... Uh, fixated on the war, right? He wanted to be at the war. He wanted to be with his men. And he was so loyal to David that he even slept in front of David's door, right? He never went home. So David's plan backfired, right? So David thought, I have a brilliant idea. I'll kill him. Well, that's a terrible idea, right? So what he did was he sent Uriah to the front of the battle and essentially that means that you're gone, right? You're at the front of the battle, you're dying within the first day. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah died. So David thinks, okay, I'm good. I got off clean. Well, not so much, right? Nathan the prophet came and completely exposes David of his sin. He calls him out. He, he, he tells him he needs to repent before God. And David finally confesses his sin and realizes his problem and and confesses it. And you see in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. You can see David's heart has finally changed. And this is where our psalm begins. So let's look at the text together. We're going to take this chunk by chunk. I'm going to look at the first two verses, and I'll walk through it with you. It says, have mercy on me, O God. Right, right there, we see that David's coming to God knowing that it's, it's God that has to provide forgiveness right? David understands he doesn't deserve it. This is mercy of God. It's grace. And then he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So what David is saying is that he's, uh, 
he knows that it's God's attributes, his character, right? His compassion and his love. That's the reason why God's going to forgive David. It's not because of anything David's doing, right? He's pleading for mercy. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David felt the weight of his sin. He wanted, it to, he wanted to be free of his sin. He wanted to be washed clean of his sin. So our text tonight shows us what we are to do when we sin against God. And that first step is we have to be heartbroken by our sin, just as David was. And that's point number one. Be heartbroken by your sin. I had this teacher when I was in fourth grade. We went on a trip to a museum. And you know those field trips you did in elementary school, I was in fourth grade, and we had this, uh, I don't know, the tour guide kind of showing us around, showing us, uh, all I remember was a train. I don't know why there was a train, but there was a train. He was talking about the train. He was talking about other exhibits. He was talking about museum, uh, a, uh, art, uh, art on the wall, and he was explaining these things, and what am I doing? Well, I was a little troublemaker fourth grader, and I'm sitting there just talking, cracking jokes, thinking I'm hilarious, talking to my buddies, and then my sweet sweet teacher, Mrs. Ellerby, comes behind my ear, and she gently wants to tell me, hey, Roy, just, you know, calm down. I've already told you a few times. Well, before she can even get to do that, I'm making this the most hilarious joke of all time, I think, and I smack her in the face, right? She starts bleeding. Her nose starts bleeding. I felt so bad. I felt terrible, and I pleaded that Mrs. Ellerby would forgive me. Mrs. Ellerby, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. It's 20 years and I still feel terrible. It's been 20 years. Guys, are you truly heartbroken over your sin? Do you feel the weight of your sin or are you just coming because you know that it's something you're supposed to do? When you sin, do you come to God like, hey, well, well, it's no big deal. God will forgive me. Well, think about it. When you disobey your parents, let's say you play video games too long or you're dishonest with them. You say you did your homework, but you didn't. Um, or you get angry with your friends, and uh, you said something to them that you, you probably shouldn't have said. And you're probably thinking, well, Roy, um, how does this compare to what David did? What David did, that's, that's much worse than, you know, these small sins that I've committed. Well, I agree to a degree. There, you know, there's various degrees of sin. However, the result of that sin is the same. Right? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Sin results in death. The result's the same, guys, whether it's a small sin or a big sin. Sin, we have to understand, is a huge deal. It's a big deal. It's never a small issue with God. Psalm 5.5, write this down. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You probably didn't realize that was in the Bible. That God says he hates sin. He hates it. Psalm 7, verse 11, he says, God is righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, what he's saying there is that he feels this anger towards sin daily, feels wrath towards sin, and he wants to pour out his wrath on sin because he's holy. God is perfectly holy. He's righteous. He's infinite. Right? So those small sins that we commit against God, we're committing against an infinite God, right? So as one person has said it, when you disobey your parents, when you sin against your parents, you know there's a punishment that fits the authority figure that you're disobeying, that you're sinning against, right? Okay, now you go to school. 
you're, you, uh, you do something wrong to your teacher, your principal. Now, you may get expelled or suspended. Now, that's a bigger punishment. Not to say they have more of authority than your, than your, your parents do, but that's a bigger punishment for the sin that you've committed. You go to a judge in a courtroom, right? You broke the law. You could go to jail for your sin, right? You could go to jail for the problem that you did, that you have. Now, think about the infinite and holy God that you sin against. That requires an infinite and eternal punishment. The punishment fits the sin of uh, who we're sinning against. David understood this, right? When he came before God, he understood his sin was against a perfect and holy and infinite God, the God of the universe. So just as David responded with that remorse over his sin, that, uh, that sorrow over his sin, we have to do the same, right? Guys, we need to be heartbroken over our sin. Back to our text. Let's look at verse 3. We're going to look next at verse 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Right? He's admitting his sin before God. He recognizes his sin. Uh, he, he recognizes that he did sin. In verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, of course, David, he's not saying that it's only God he sinned against. He sinned against Uriah, right? He, he killed Uriah. He sinned against the people of Israel, right? He abused his power and did something he shouldn't have done. But ultimately, he sinned against God. Big picture, he broke God's law. Let's go on. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David recognizes that the punishment fit the crime, right? He, he recognizes that he deserved what, he, what was coming to him. The sin that, uh, the punishment that he was going to receive was, was righteous and good. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, quickly, this is uh, talking, this touches a little bit on the doctrine of total depravity, original sin. You've probably heard that term before, original sin. It's the result of when Adam and Eve sinned. We were, uh, uh, original sin, sin uh, went, came into the world, and now we have a sin nature. We're born into sin. So now we are sinners by nature. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David is saying, hey, look, we need, I need God's wisdom. I need God's truth. If I'm going to walk in righteousness, if I'm going to do the things God wants me to do, I need to know what he wants me to do, and I need to follow what he wants me to do. So we see David recognizing his sinfulness and that sin nature, and then he's confessing it to God, right? He's admitting to God that he sinned. The second thing you want to do when you sin against God is you got you to confess your sins, right? Point number two, confess your sins to God. Why? Why do we got to do that? Why do I got to confess my sin to God? Well, it's a necessary aspect of the Christian life. Okay, why is that? Well, confession is admitting what you did is wrong, and you agree with the fact that God says it's wrong, right? To confess is to say the same thing that God says about sin. That's what confession is. 1 John 8, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 1, 8 through 9. You can write that down. You don't have to turn there. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, right? We're deceived if we say we've never sinned. 
We, we, deceive, we deceive ourselves if we don't agree with what God says is sinful. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, that's why we, we confess our sins. We want to be forgiven by God. We have to confess our sins. We deceive ourselves if we don't confess our sins. And confession of sins, is, it's an indication that someone's truly a Christian, someone's truly repentant, because they agree with God about their problem. Now, if you don't do this, then you're saying that what you did was not wrong, right? Verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was between me and God, who's the liar? It's probably me, right? If it's between you or God, it's probably you, right? God's not a liar, God is always truthful. Also, when we confess our sins, the Bible tells us we need to confess our sins uh, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And what I'm talking about is, is more along the lines of uh, uh, apologizing to them, right? James 5, 16a, it says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, right? When you wrong someone, when you sin against them, confess your sin to them and ask them for forgiveness, just as we do with God. Now, right, confessing your sins is more, it's more than just saying words. It's not just some formula that you say words and you're good. You have to mean it, right? There has to be heartfelt intention behind it. You have to care about what you're saying. So let's just say you, uh, you disobeyed your parents, right? And you, 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 whatever you did, you disobeyed your parents, you, you gave them a halfway apology, and then you go to God and you say, oops, Sorry, God, didn't mean to do that. Totes my bad, right? That shows that your heart's not truly repentant. You're not truly confessing to God. You're just, you're just checking off a box, and it's silly, but we do that, right? You do that. You go to God, not understanding your sin is, is weighty, it's big, and you, you give a half-hearted confession to God. This is not the way that David modeled for us in our text here. He truly understood his sin. He felt the depths of it, and he confesses it to God. It's not just words he was saying. He had emotion in his, in his confession. He feels it. He knows it. He gets it. He was truly sorry over it. And that's the way that we need to approach God when we confess our sins. So what is keeping you from confessing? Right? That's what you may ask. Sometimes you, uh, there's two things that I noted was uh, you could be uh, embarrassed right? or you could be prideful. And the first thing, embarrassment, you, you feel shame over your sin. And maybe that's why you're not confessing to your brother or sister in Christ. Maybe that's why you don't want to confess to God because you feel shame over your sin. But listen, shame is kind of a good thing. It leads you to repent. It leads you to confess because you feel guilty about what you're doing wrong. You feel guilty about your sin. And take David's example as encouragement because he probably was totally ashamed of what he did. He was exposed. He was caught. Nathan called him out. So he went to God with a true confession, a true heart. Or maybe it's pride, right? We don't ever like to admit we're wrong. Raise your hand. Who likes to admit they're wrong? One guy, one guy likes to admit he's wrong. Everyone go hang out with him. You try to justify your sin, right? We try to explain our sin. We try to uh, uh, make it like it's not a big deal. 
You need to own it, though. Instead, you have to confess that sin both to God and to the person that you've sinned against. Right, let's look at uh, our text again, verse 7. We're going to look at 7 through 12. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So purge me with hyssop. What does that mean? Well, hyssop was the, the little plant that the Levitical priests would use in the Old Testament, and they would dip it in this, the blood of the sacrificial animal, and they'd kind of sprinkle it on the altar. And that was a sign of, okay, this is an accepted sacrifice. Or what would happen if there was someone who was unclean and they needed washing, they would, they would do a, ceremony, a ceremonial washing and they'd dip the hyssop in the water and they'd sprinkle it on the, uh, the unclean person, right? This is a sign to show cleanliness, a sign to show uh, uh, washing of sins. Verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Right? Joy is more than just a, an emotion. It's, it's more than emotional reaction. It's, it's being made right with God. You're at peace with God. So you have true joy because your sins have been forgiven if you're forgiven. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Right? Of course, we don't want God to look at our sin any longer. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me right? This is renewal, and renewal begins with God. It's a, it's a miraculous occurrence. God has to do something in your heart to, to start to renew you, and then what he has to do is he has to sustain you, and that's sanctification. He's, he's growing you in righteousness. He's renewing your heart constantly. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, this looks confusing because we know in New Testament that Christians got the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit dwells believers, indwells believers. Well, that's not what David's saying here, right? Some commentators get confused on this, but uh, what David's saying here is it's reminiscent to 1 Samuel 16 when David took away the authority of Saul as king of Israel and gave it to David, right? So he, he don't take away my responsibility. Don't take away my leadership. Don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. He was fearing that because of his sin, right? Because there's, there's uh, consequences for our sin. He was fearing that because of his sin with Bathsheba, that his, his role as king would be removed from him. Verse 11. I'm sorry, I said that. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So because of the sin that David committed, he started to feel this spiritual dryness, this numbness to his sin because he didn't respond to it until Nathan called him out, until the prophet called him out. And he wanted to, again, feel that right relationship with God. He wanted that joy to be restored again. So when we look at this section, we can see David's desire to both be restored and renewed by God. So the third thing that we do when we sin is we have to seek God for spiritual renewal. Seek God for spiritual renewal. Renewal begins with God, as we mentioned, right? David understood that he needed to be completely cleansed of his sin. He needed to be completely washed from the inside out. And that only happens through the power of God. That starts with God. And we can't, of our own power, of our own decisions, do this for ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves. 
There's no works, there's no amount of good things that you can do to make yourself right before God. We need God to do this renewal, and we need God to continue to work in our heart so that we continue in righteousness and continue in that renewed state. And God can bring us to right standing and fellowship with him. So when you sin, your cleansing is, again, not anything you do. You, you need to trust in God alone, right? That he can cleanse you from your sin and bring you back into right relationship with him. Look to God's word to do this, right? Look to God's word to learn how to live righteously, right? Just as David desired to be cleansed, he, he desired to walk in righteousness, he desired to do the things that God has called him to do, we have to seek after this as well. Romans 12, 2. I'd love for you to turn there. We'll look at it together. Romans 12, verse 2. And it's a quick verse, but it's good to get our eyes on it. This is Paul writing to the, to the church in Rome. And he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Being conformed to the world, that's the sin, that's the uh, things that we don't want to do, that's unrighteousness, the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That happens through the power of the Holy Spirit working through God's word, telling us, okay, this is how you become more like Christ. Your mind needs to be renewed by the word. And it goes on to say that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? We learn that from Scripture, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. This kind of transformation occurs through the careful reading and study of Scripture. The more that you, you take in Scripture and the more that you study it, the more that you go and apply it, that's when you're going to be more like Christ and grow in your righteousness. And that's key to spiritual renewal. God's Word, we need to love this book we need to desire to read it every single day so that we can learn how to become more like Christ and walk in righteousness. Now back to our text. Let's look at this again. We're actually going to skip past 13 and through 15. We'll come back to that. Verse 16, For you will not delight in right sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. What? I thought he instituted the, the sacrifices. Okay, yeah, well, let's keep reading. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. altar. Okay, what is he saying? What are we talking about here? Right, the text is not saying that that God doesn't like sacrifices. God's the one who instituted the sacrifices, right? It was an act of obedience by uh, giving sacrifice. But he requires the sinner who gives the sacrifice to have the right mentality, the right heart, the right desire for God. The text is saying that God is not happy with those sacrifices. He, he's not happy with duty alone. He's not happy with just uh, obeying for the sake of obeying. He wants to see God, or I'm sorry, he wants to see the sinner have the right heart. True sacrifices is from a person that has a broken heart about their sin. God cares more about that inward change instead of the external work. So another step in responding to our sin, point number four, approach God with the proper perspective. 
approach God with the proper perspective. God wants us to have the right perspective when we approach him for forgiveness. When we're asking him, coming before his throne, asking him for forgiveness, we need to have the right understanding. So God required the Israelites to make sacrifice for sins. Check, we got that. David's not indicating that the sacrifices were were wrong or of no value. But what we see in the text is that God was concerned with the way that those were brought, right? With the way the sinner brought those sacrifices to God. He was concerned with the heart. The sinner has to come to God with a broken and sorrowful heart before he made those sacrifices. That's how they're going to be received by God. Isaiah 57, 15, jot this verse down. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Wow, that's huge. God, we're talking about the big God, God who's eternal and holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite, right, sorrowful, or lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is with the one who comes to him with the right heart. God is with the one who, who is sorrowful over their sin. In other words, we need to understand that we don't deserve anything, right? We owe God everything, everything in our life. We owe him it all. Think about this. When you go to God in prayer, are you going to just simply check off the box? Are you just going to say some words because you know that's what you have to do? Maybe your prayers are becoming just you're walking through the motions. You're just doing what you need to do. But you should be coming to God with a sorrowful, broken heart. You should be praying to God with this this, uh, mentality of, I know that I've sinned and I've committed a great sin against the, the great God of the universe. That's the way that we need to approach God. When you go to God's word, again, are you doing that out of just Christian duty, obligation? You know, you hear it every week. Read the Bible. Are you doing it because you have to read the Bible? Are you doing it just because you want to check off the box? Right? You should be reading the Bible, but you should be wanting to come to the word of God, desiring to learn more about Christ and become more like him as a result of it. You should want to come to God's word every single day and grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. You need to have that proper perspective. Think about this. My, let's say my wife, who's sitting right there, by the way, made dinner for us. She spent hours thinking about it, preparing it. She bought all the spices and the, the meat, whatever it is. She put it together. She spent time putting it together. She read numerous cookbooks to find the right recipe to make sure that I enjoyed it. And, you know, I come home, I sit down, I'm, I'm excited, right? I'm stoked. This meal is going to be awesome. And then I sit down, take my first bite, I look her right in the eyes and I say, that was terrible. That's disgusting. Are you kidding me? You made that? That is so bad. This has never happened before, by the way. I promise you. I've never done this to her. I might have done that before once. <laughs> Not as intense, but I, I've done it. Anyways. What if I, okay, what if I did that, right? I can't, and, I, and I said, this is the worst thing I've ever had in my life. I've never done that. It's the worst thing I've ever had in my life. This is disgusting. Okay, well, I messed up. I did something terrible. That's wrong. So what, I, what do I do? I go to the local grocery store, grab some flowers, right? That's what a good husband does. I come home. Here's your flowers. We're good now? No? <laughs> are you crazy? No way are we good now. Kristen expects an apology. 
My wife expects me to come to her with a heart that wants to be made right with her, with a heart that's truly sorry over what I did. Of course, the flowers are, are a good thing. I, I better come home with flowers if that's something I said, but I better also come with the right heart. I better also come with the right mentality. It'd be totally different if I came to her and said, hey, here's your flowers. Oh, oh man, I'm so sorry. I, I can't believe I did that. I'm just, it's so wrong of me. Will you please forgive me? Yeah, I mean, she, she's going to forgive me, right? She sees my heart. She sees the token of my appreciation, the token of my, my, sor- my sorrow, and she sees my true intentions, right? My true feelings. The point is, God's not pleased by the sacrifice in itself, right? God uh, just as my wife is, is not happy with the flowers, God is pleased with the sinner who desires to be made right with God, who does not trust in themselves but trusts fully in the grace and the mercy of God, comes to God with the proper perspective. That's what God looks for. God looks at the heart of us. Turn with me to Luke 18. We're going to look at Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. And in this, we see the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. We see there are two different responses to God. And I'm going to read it for you. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, Standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, oh, this tax collector. If I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Of course, I'm putting emphasis on it, right? He's being boastful, he's being prideful. He's relying on his own works for being right with God. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. This man was repentant. He felt sorry for his sin. He wouldn't even look to heaven because he was so ashamed over what he's done. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognized his sin and he recognized that God, it had to come from God. He didn't deserve the forgiveness It was only by the mercy of God. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the tax collector came to God with that broken and sorrowful heart, came to God with the right perspective. He understood that he, again, deserved nothing, and owed God everything. Back to what, back to our text, Psalm 51. Let's look at these final verses here. Verses 13. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He's talking about when he receives that forgiveness, he wants to tell everybody about it, right? He wants to tell the sinners and the transgressors and all these people, look, you can have forgiveness. You can have forgiveness from God. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Blood guiltiness, okay, what are we talking about there? Well, remember, David killed Uriah. And the law says that if you kill someone, you 
are going to receive death, the death penalty, right? That's what blood guiltiness is talking about here. He deserved death, but he got the mercy of God. So, oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He received the mercy of God. So he wanted to sing and tell the world about it. He wanted to praise God because he was expecting that, that, that forgiveness from God. Verse 15, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So similarly, he wanted to sing uh, songs to God. He wanted God to know that he was grateful for, this, for the uh, forgiveness that he received for his sins. David clearly had a lot to rejoice about, right? He was uh, forgiven of murder. He was forgiven of adultery. And because he was forgiven of much, that's why he had a lot to rejoice about. But you and I also have much to rejoice about. Much sin has been forgiven. And God has extended that opportunity of forgiveness to all of us, to you, to me, to everybody. So rejoice that God forgives sinners. That's point number five. Rejoice that God forgives sinners. David responded to that offer of forgiveness with, with rejoice, with praise. Think about this, right? David would deserve death. He deserved a death sentence. He knew that. But God was merciful towards him. He extended grace and forgiveness to David, even though he didn't deserve that. In the same way, God extends grace and forgiveness and mercy to us through Jesus Christ. We deserve death because of our sin. Remember, we talked about it. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal separation from God because of our sin. We, we deserve an eternal punishment because of our sin. But if you keep reading that verse, it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What an amazing promise, you guys, that we can have a, the free gift of eternal life with Jesus and our sins can be completely washed away. We ought to rejoice and praise him for that because God is faithful to forgive sins. We don't deserve his forgiveness, right? It's mercy. It's grace. He graciously gives it to us. And he does so daily. We need that forgiveness on a day-to-day -day basis. You probably have sinned while I'm talking in this sermon. You've probably sinned before and you probably will sin after. Now, I'm not making light of sin, right? You should not ever sin, right? Be perfect as my heavenly father is, or as your heavenly father is perfect. We, we don't want to sin. But my point is, is that you can get that forgiveness even on a daily basis. It's a free gift from God. But he also graciously provides forgiveness at an at a ultimate level, right? At the, at the high level where we are guilty before God and we can be forgiven entirely and now be seen as innocent before God because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, because of his righteousness. Not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus has done. Ultimately, we need forgiveness from that sin nature. So turn to Romans 5, 6 through 8. We're going to look at that together. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Again, Paul's talking to the Roman church. Chapter 5 is talking about peace with God through faith in Jesus. Let's see what I'm talking about here. Verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly, that's you and me. Right? 
we are the ones that don't deserve God's forgiveness. We're the ones who have sinned against him. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Right? Even for a good person, you'd think about it. Maybe I, maybe I would. But for an ungodly person, a criminal, an unrighteous person, a sinner, and Jesus says, I'm going to die for him. And he did. He died for you. You're that criminal. You're that sinner. He died for me. I'm that criminal. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though he knew and saw that we sinned against him, he still gave his life for us. Verse 11, this is the beautiful part of this verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What that means is we received forgiveness from God, and we can rejoice in Christ because we've received that gift of grace. That ought to uh, cause us to praise and rejoice. Just as David wanted to praise God for the forgiveness that he offers. He wanted to rejoice because his sins could be forgiven. We ought to as well. How should we respond to this forgiveness of sin? Right? What can we practically do? Well, let's tell the world about the forgiveness of sin. Just as David wanted to tell everybody that, hey, there is an offer of forgiveness of your sins. Think about someone you need to talk to. Is it a friend? Is it a family member? Someone at school? Who do you need to tell the gospel to if you're a Christian? Maybe one of you right now are hearing this in a new light, in a new perspective. Maybe you're hearing what I'm saying to you right now, and you have not received uh, salvation. Maybe you have not received forgiveness of your sins. Well, again, it's a free gift. You can do that tonight. Maybe you need to realize it's time for you to be forgiven and be made right with God. Now, this forgiveness found... In Christ, it, it leads us to worship him. The person who is forgiven by God can truly praise him, right? Because their sins have been forgiven. It's white, the, the account is, is, is zero. Their sins have been completely been forgiven, so they can have this sense of joy and praise because they've been forgiven. What are those practical things you can do to worship God? Well, we do them all the time at church. We can worship God through singing. We sing songs. The songs we sing, a lot of them are about the thankfulness of forgiveness, a lot of them, are, of course, are about the finished work of Christ on the cross, the salvation that we can receive because of his death and resurrection. We, we can worship God through thanksgiving. It starts with prayer, right? We can pray to God with a heart of thanks, thankfulness because of our forgive, forgiveness of sin. We can worship God through uh, intaking and applying God's word so we can, we can read God's word daily and desire to do that, and try to look at the word and see, okay, what do I need to change? How can I grow more in Christ? How can I grow in righteousness? How can I become more like uh, Jesus and more holy? And we have to do that daily. I said that earlier. We have to do it daily, and we have to do it intentionally. You ought to rejoice that God has forgiven you. I read about this uh, unmarked tombstone outside of uh, Sydney, New York. And, you know, the tombstone, that little rock thing that marks where, you know, the dead body is in the graveyard. Well, usually what people do is they'll put their name, they'll put the date of birth, the date they died, they'll put, and they'll put some quote, you know, they'll put, uh, you know, some saying that they like or a Bible verse even, something to show the world what it is like that they cared about. Or, you know, kind of a last saying that they want to give to whoever we're going to visit their, their grave site. Well, 
This unmarked tombstone had no name, had no date, and all it had was the word forgiven. Forgiven. This unknown person, they wanted to tell the world that their sins have been forgiven. They wanted everyone to know the most important thing to them was that they've been forgiven and that they can also be forgiven. The people that see that tombstone, you can be forgiven too. And now this person's spending eternity with Christ, experiencing that forgiveness daily. So you see, you too can be forgiven. What do you do when you sin? You gotta approach God with the right perspective, the right intentions, and the right heart. And you need to rejoice in the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, God, I pray for these guys. I pray that this may be, you know, although not unique or something new that they've heard before, I pray that they see it in a new light. God, please help them to understand their sin before you, to see that you are big and they are small and their sins, even small ones, are committed against an infinite God. God, I hope that they can see how they can apply this in their small groups. Use these questions, God, to change the way that they think, the way that they view you. Help them to have a right perspective as a result of this sermon, as a result of these questions, God. God, we're just so grateful to you that we have your word and we have forgiveness of sin. We're grateful to you for your son that you've you've sent us. God, and we praise you for that. God, please bless this time in small groups now. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.